true believers, welcome to Simply Devotion, a podcast that takes complex theological ideas and transforms them into points of understanding. I am your host, Pastor Vinny, from simplyvinny.com. Hello there, true believers. This is Pastor Vinny from simplyvinny.com. And today I am here to give you a special podcast because it is Black History Month. By the way, happy Black History Month. And, you know, normally I pre-record my shows quite far in advance because, you know, time management. It's a thing, and it's a thing I'm not good at. So I have to pre-record far in advance to not forget to have an episode ready for you on Wednesdays at 10 o'clock. 10.10 to be precise is when each episode drops. Nonetheless, this is actually February the 2nd. I'm actually recording within (laughs) a normal time frame of the show, which if all goes well, will drop tomorrow. And so this is like a new experience for me because, again, I normally pre-record ahead of time. But because this Wednesday, when my show normally comes out, will be the first Wednesday in Black History Month of 2021, I wanted to make sure that I had something that was Black History related. And so, you know, it was important for me to stay a little bit later tonight at the office and I use my office for a recording studio and to record this episode so that we could celebrate Black History Month together. Now, if you haven't picked up on it, maybe you have. I mean, I have a distinct uh, Caucasian Canadian slash American accent, I Yes, at least I've been told. I don't know. How do you determine these things? Anyways, I was born and raised in Canada and moved to the United States. I am Caucasian, so I'm a white pastor. Basically, here in the United States from Canada. And so people would say to me often when we would present on uh, in church on Black History Month, they would say, you're a white guy. Why are you talking about black history? Or why do you always make sure it gets emphasized in your church every year? Well, you know, I just think that black history is really American history. And I'm going to unpack that in a minute. But before I even unpack that, I also want to say this. Um, This podcast is going to tie directly into the life of oppression that Jesus lived. And so I just want to, for those who are wondering what the spiritual angle is here, we're going to get there. We're going to talk about the life of oppression that Jesus actually lived. And, you know, in my last podcast, if you're listening to these in sequence, I talked about the misunderstandings in the background and looked deeper at the background of Jesus. And we talked about how Jesus was not white. In fact, Jesus was not 
black, but Jesus was very dark according to current archaeology, much more closer to a dark-skinned person than to a Caucasian like myself. Nonetheless, we will get to the spiritual elements in a minute. But when I'm asked, why as a white pastor do I always talk about Black History Month every February, I always say, you know, Black history is American history. And I want to, in this podcast here for half a minute right now, unpack what I mean by that. And here's what I mean by that. The truth is that America was built and rose to the great success that it is because of the labor of black people in this land. Now, it goes without saying, I hope, that they did not volunteer their labor. They did not get paid for their labor. Uh, Their labor was stolen from them. Their liberty was stolen from them. And it's ironic to me that our history books downplay how America rose to its success. And they have largely told the story of a white America. And you don't have to be a history expert to know that. I mean, it's just pretty much common sense that, you know, we have focus on like great white leaders in America and we have focused on great white companies in America. And and so we've kind of left this void where we've talked about the massive contribution that black and people of color have made to America. Now, again, you don't need to be a history scholar to know this. You can just think back to, you know, when you were studying about the formation of the United States as a child in elementary school, you know, you heard about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. You heard about, you know, oh, you heard about black people when it came to the unit on Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, but you never heard great stories about what they did or what they contributed, you know? You don't have to be a historian to know that this is true. You can just remember your own upbringing, right? Um, But if you wanted to look at some history, you know, there are books out there, there are historians out there who would um, put this in perspective. Um, I've always enjoyed Howard Zinn, And um, the people's history of the United States seems to be a different way of looking at history. But my major point would be more simple than that. When we talk about black history, we are talking about American history. We are talking about American history that often is not talked about enough. And so in the month of February, I thought I can at least um, dedicate one week out of the month, one podcast out of the month to stop, slow down and think about black history and think about a connection to black history and Christianity, you know, and to Jesus and to the whole purpose of this podcast. That's why I told people, hold on, we will get to the point where we're going to um, make our connections. 
Uh, I want to talk about a particular historical figure in Black American history. I want to talk about Howard Washington Thurman. And you may know the name Howard Washington Thurman, or you may not know that name. But I want to talk about Howard Thurman. I want to talk about his contributions. He was an American author. Um, some would call him a philosopher for sure. He was a theologian. He was an educator and most importantly, a civil rights leader. He was probably like a forerunner um, to the to the big civil rights movement in America, he was a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. We'll talk about that again in a few minutes. He was a religious figure again. He was uh, a theologian and he was greatly profound and ahead of his time. Even to this day, you can find many of his sermons um, uploaded to YouTube in various places like that if you want to go check him out yourself. By the way, he also wrote over 20 books or more, just quickly looking over his big biography here. Um, yeah, at least. And, you know, it's actually one of his books that we're going to focus in on today in a minute. He was perhaps his greatest legacy towards the civil rights movement, again, from my perspective, is that he is probably the first one who introduced the idea to the American civil rights movement that nonviolence, um, nonviolent interventions were probably going to be the most effective mechanisms in order to bring about change. Now, um, that definitely helped with Martin Luther King Jr. and his movement. Thurman also um, was a world traveler and he went to India and met with Mahatma Gandhi um, and they became friends. And this is where this idea of nonviolence um, as a practical way to change the world was introduced to uh, Howard Thurman. And um, he asked Gandhi if he had any words for America. And legend would have it, Gandhi told him that it may be through the black people that finally an unadulterated message of nonviolence would be presented and delivered to the world. Perhaps his most successful book at conveying this idea um, is by the title of Jesus in the Disinherited. Uh, Jesus and the Disinherited. And it is that book that I would like to focus a little bit on. Um, I did a reflective book review of it for our, for my website, and you can find um, that version of what I'm talking about at simplyvinnycom slash disinherited. And um, actually, it's kind of interesting because, you know, um, some of my blogs on my website are more read than others. But this particular blog... Uh, which is a reflective book review of Jesus and the Disinherited, 
simplyvinny.com slash disinherited is the most read article on my whole website. In fact, this is read easily thousands and thousands of times more than anything else from my website. <laughs> I don't know who's circulating my link, but thank you. <laughs> I am getting lots of traffic and people jumping to other articles on my website because of this um, this entry, this reflective um, book review I did on Howard Thurman's book, Jesus in the Disinherited. And in that blog, I basically break down who Howard Thurman is and um, and what the key points of his book are. And that's what I'm going to do today. As I already said, Howard Thurman is probably the grandfather of the civil rights movement in the United States. And while I can't confirm its 100% accuracy, it's been widely reported amongst people who knew Martin Luther King Jr. that he always carried a copy of this book, Jesus and the Disinherited, with him every place he went in his briefcase. It's also been widely reported that Martin Luther King Jr. considered this book to be the um, blueprint of his whole movement. What is absolutely certain is that Thurman knew Martin Luther King's father at Morehouse College as a classmate, and Martin Luther King Jr. also formed his own direct friendship with Thurman over the later years at his during his time at Boston University, where I believe, if I remember correctly, Thurman served... Um, in some official capacity for a while at that university, Thurman played sort of a mentoring role to Martin and to other future um, civil rights leaders as well. Um, it seems that um, Martin really took uh, an interest or was ignited in understanding this idea that was the thesis of Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, that nonviolent life and a life that loves like Jesus could overthrow the powers of oppression. In fact, one of the key components of the idea of the book book, Jesus and the Disinherited, is the idea that Jesus shared some similarities to black people living in oppression in America, both in slavery and in um, Jim Crow. And what would that comparison be? Well, Jesus was a Jew, and Jews were living under the bondage of the Romans. And so Jesus was also a oppressed minority, is one way we could look at the story of Jesus. And so then, really, Howard is asking the question, 
And the book, Jesus and the Disinherited, is kind of the answer. How did Jesus live under national oppression and even within his own sphere of faith and family, Jesus was oppressed, right? So Jesus' oppression comes because he's a Jew, and all Jews are being oppressed by Rome, but Jesus' oppression also comes because he is a second-class Jew, although he's a rabbi, which we would think of as an elevated class, but what makes him second-class? The fact that he is from Nazareth, right? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth is how the saying goes. And furthermore, think about the stigma that would have been attached to Jesus' life. Because they're not going to, there's no one that's going to believe in the Jewish faith at Jesus' time, in the Second Temple time, first century, that Mary really really uh, was a virgin and was with child because of the Holy Spirit. And so in Howard Thurman's point of view, Jesus also suffered oppression, but Jesus did not fall into league with the zealots who were the uh, violent um, members of the Jewish religion. They were kind of like Second Temple, first century Jewish Al-Qaeda. Jesus didn't try to overthrow the Romans with force. But rather in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just says crazy things, or they would have appeared crazy to people who were living under oppression. And, you know, he says, like, go the second mile. He says things like, turn the other cheek. Now, they all have an exegetical context to them. You know, like, I'm not going to go into great detail here. I'll save that for some time when we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. But, but basically, the context is uh, going the second mile is if a Roman centurion forces you to carry his bags because under Roman law, centurions were able to carry, to force you to go to carry their bags for one mile, but not two. And of course, the great irony here is that a centurion um, is basically oppressing your, oppressing your people and actually causing them to um, you know, suffer from heavy taxation, right? And so you're carrying their equipment to oppress your people. You're carrying their people, their equipment to tax you, right? And your own families are starving, and yet you've got to give the money to the Romans. And Jesus is like, look, if he, if Roman law requires you to go one mile, go two. And it's, a, it's the same idea with the cloak and, and the coat and, you know, you know, uh, give your give your shirt or give your coat and turn 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 the other cheek. All these things are just an example of how you could go a little bit further in Jesus' time than what the Roman law mandated you had to do. Okay. Now, I I just like 
for the point of today's conversation and keeping it brief, I, I would just point out Jesus didn't say go a third mile. Jesus didn't say go a fourth mile. Jesus didn't say turn the other cheek and then let them beat you to death with a rod. Jesus didn't say, you know, go stark naked and give all your household's clothes away. Like, so he's saying go beyond what's reasonable under current morals or more but you don't have to go into the point of destruction either jesus is teaching basically on the sermon on the mount that you should go more than what your enemy would expect you to go and this is basically what howard thurman is talking about how do we get to a place where we are mentally or emotionally or even politically ready to do that. So Jesus and the Disinherited is actually a systematic map of mechanics of um, how to hold a nonviolent stance that is a rebellious stance, but nonviolent long term. And so again, as I said in my opening comments, this was greatly influenced by Mahabat Gandhi and, and traveling there and, and coming to understand um, deeper from, you know, the, the Indian population in India who had been oppressed by, by many generations of people, including the British, and, and how Gandhi walked through that. And so this began to make connections to Thurman about how Jesus walked and lived. The whole structure of the book, Jesus and the Disinherited, is worth considering itself. In some ways, I like to think that Thurman created a sandwich structure, and we'll get to what I mean by that in a minute. Um, but it's kind of... A sandwich structure with one piece of bread at the beginning, sort of a meat substance or, or sandwich substance in the middle, and then an ending slice of bread. Um, he starts off talking about understanding the life of Jesus, and he goes several chapters into that. Um, the first chapter in his book goes like, well, wait, before I even go into that, let me just give you the whole overall structure of his book. So we have chapter one, which is an interpretation of Jesus. So again, um, bear with me. Thurman is interpreting the life of Jesus in comparing it to oppression. He's looking for the elements of oppression in the life of Jesus. That's chapter one. Chapter one, I would call it the interpretation of Jesus and looking at the oppression Jesus faced in his life. Now, chapters two, three, and four are kind of the meat of the book. And they're hard to read. If, if I'm really honest with you, Chapters two, three, and four are, they're small, but they're emotionally heavy to read. In fact, um, 
the three elements that are discussed in these three chapters, Thurman refers to as the three hounds of hell of the oppressed. Three hounds of hell of the oppressed. And here they are. Chapter two is fear. Chapter three is deception. And chapter four is hate. So in the opening chapter, the opening slice of bread is an interpretation of Jesus, followed by the meat of the book, the three hounds of hell of the oppressed, fear, deception, and hate. And then chapter five will be the solution, but we'll hold off on that because I want to explore just for a moment. I know in a podcast, we can't really get into the depths that Thurman gets into in the book, but I am hoping this encourages you to pick up the book. It is emotional reading and requires diligence to read, but it's not long and it's not, you know, other than being emotionally hard to read at times, it's not um, academically hard to read. So, If we think about it this way, fear causes us to feel like there's something we need to do about these oppressors, right? So we're being oppressed, you know, think about Jesus. We can think about Jesus for a moment. And, you know, the Romans are overtaxing the people and the people can't feed their own children. And, you know, from time to time, the Romans imply that the Jews should be worshiping their gods and... You know, they have defiled the temple from time to time. And so, like, there's this fear, like, you, when you're being oppressed, you, you just don't know what's going to happen next, right? You you, you just don't know, right? And, and that kind of leads to deception. And in the idea of deception as a hound of hell, um, look, your oppressors are going to do enough bad things to you already because they're not good people. Oppressors are not good people. You know, I'm sorry. The Our forefathers, our Caucasian forefathers who, who um, you know, enslaved Africans were not good people. Now, we could say, well, you can't judge that point in history by this point in history. Come on. We're humans. Slavery particularly chattel slavery has never been seen as being something immoral. Um, You know, this is not indentured service. This is taking someone from their nation and working them to death. And so it's fair to say that it's worth having fear of these kind of people because they're unreasonable. But under deception, because we fear them because we know they're unreasonable under deception we create imaginary scenarios where they might do more to us than they may currently be doing not to say they won't do it later but deception allows us to believe that worse things could happen to us and deception also does another thing deception confuses us about who bad humans are. Even bad humans, even evil humans, are humans. They are 
created in the image of God, even if that image is so horribly and horrifically marred. Deception, led on by fear, allows us to dehumanize our oppressors. And when we dehumanize our oppressors, Thurman would tell us, that leads us to our third hound of hell in chapter 4. Our third hound of hell is hate. Once you fear someone enough to be deceived about who they really are or not, then it becomes really easy to hate them. And of course, hate leads to violence. And so that's kind of the end of, you know, what could happen in terms of Gandhi's advice to him, right, (laughs) about... You know, the the black people of America maybe being the world's last chance to see change come from nonviolence. And so what's going to be the solution? The solution will be the other slice of bread holding the three hounds of hell together, right? So the opening slice of bread is an interpretation of Jesus, understanding Jesus as oppressed, The three hounds of hell are what Jesus had to overcome. Fear, deception, and hate. And the last slice of bread on this sandwich would be the solution. Chapter 5. Love. In... Yeah, we'll talk more about this. You know, we don't want to oversimplify love, right? You know... This is not like, you know, the Beatles, love, love me do. Why am I singing on my podcast? I'm a terrible singer. Please forgive me. Don't shut it off. I won't sing anymore. I promise. But this is not like, you know, red hearts and candy love. This is the hard work of love. This is the work of love that does rebuke. You know, Jesus said in Revelation 3, right? Those whom I love, I chastise, I rebuke. Love is not a force that does not resist. Love does resist. It just doesn't resist violently. You know, love has um, healthy love has limits. So, you know. My sandwich structure of the book is an oversimplified snapshot that I hope um, gives you a pattern to follow. Basically, Jesus faced great oppression, and we can find comfort in his life and his solution in how he overcame the oppression in his life. Because human oppression always leads to human fear, And for good reasons, human fear leads to deception. And for good reasons, you know, like the threat of the welfare of your family, your your loved ones, these are real threats that cause deception to lead us to deception. But 
Thurman would tell us that living a life of deception, why it is understandable, why there is a clear rational pattern to living a life of deception, deception always leads us to hate because living a dishonest life, even for good causes, creates unbearable resentment in the heart of the oppressed from generation to generation. And so sooner or later, after generation of generation of fear and deception and hate, it's going to set off violence. Once hate sets in, the oppressed is headed towards destruction, according to Thurman. And this destruction will first be moral destruction, but it will follow that it will be literal destruction because hate will propel us to act like defeated people and defeated people will justify any course of action. The only escape, Howard Thurman would tell us, is the love of Jesus. And what does that mean? When we see into the heart of the hater, we are broken by the pity for the hater we develop because we realize they themselves are also being oppressed by their very own hate. And you have been called to spiritually set them free. I'm going to say that again. When we look into the heart of the hater, because we once were the hater, because we grew to hate those who hate us, but when the love of Jesus awakens us that we cannot live this way congruent with Jesus, we look into the heart of the hater with pity for the hater because we realize they themselves are being oppressed by their own hate. And it may be that we have been called as Christians, to set them free. Thurman's central hypothesis in the book is that the religion that Jesus lived produced the kind of life for him that identified with the downtrodden, the outcast, the broken, the disinherited of the world. That is to say... The true religion of God expressed in the living life of love of Jesus under his own oppression is how he found the power to release us of our oppression spiritually. So we need to find the transformative power of Christ to not only free ourselves from hate, but to teach those who also hate like once we hated how to be free. Well, not 
Denying the divinity of Jesus, it's also fair to say that Thurman grounds himself in the humility, humility and humanity, both of those, humility and humanity of Jesus. And he brilliantly exegetes the power of love over oppression when he looks at the life of Jews being oppressed by Romans and how Jesus chose in particularly the Sermon in the Mount to tackle this issue. He takes this picture of Jesus that is so brilliant and he compares it to the life of the oppressed in America. He is unapologetic in his honesty about the evils of ethnic oppression and racism in America. Thurman pulls no punches. Unlike others I have read who advocate nonviolence, they sometimes will try to roam romance the situation or spiritualize what they're living through or what people are called to live through. But but Thurman is not one of these soft-pedaling, non-violent intervention guys. He pulls no punches. I mean, literally, the part that deals with the oppression in his book are called the three hounds of hell. I mean, he is not saying, you know, that loving your neighbor is going to give you butterflies and it's going to just be a bed of roses. No, he's talking about fear, self-deception, and hate being the hard work of nonviolent interventions. And so he spends a large portion of his book being blunt and working you through those things before he ever tells you about love. I think part of his recipe in this book is just to show you what happens if you go down the other road, to show you what happens if you give into fear, to show you what happens if you give into self-deception and hate, to make love more appealing. Um, but he pulls no punches and he calls on Christ and Christ the man for the church to wake up and to get past this facade that they are not part of the problem. In fact, here's a quote from Thurman. He says, it cannot be denied that too often the weight of the Christian movement has been on the side of the strong and the powerful and against the weak and the oppressed. This, despite the gospel, end quote. I want to give you that quote again. It cannot be denied that too often the weight of the Christian movement has been on the side of the strong and the powerful and against and against and against the weak and the oppressed. 
this despite the gospel. A few more Thurman quotes, if you will. If a man knows precisely what he can do to you or what effort he can hurl against you in order to make you lose your temper, your equilibrium, then he can always keep you under subjection. End quote. Another quote. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive, end quote. And for Thurman, to come alive is to love like Jesus. A dream, this is another quote, a dream is the bearer of a new possibility. And in the large horizon, the great hope. End quote. Again, the idea is we get so trapped in fear, deception, and hatred that we need to dream about a love. A love that transforms and gives a new hope, a new horizon, a new possibility. I want to give you this last quote to reflect on. And I pray because, you know, this is 2021. Before I get to this last quote, this is 2021. And we all know what happened last year. And, you know, some people want to pretend it's about politics, but it's not. I mean, racism is not a political thing. It's a human thing. And we make all kinds of excuses for it. But we can do better. As a white man living in America, I'm telling you, we can be better allies. We can be better friends. We can stop buying into false narratives. We can stand up for justice. We can come to terms with the fact that we have had privilege, and that some of our own fears, deception, and hate, come from the desire to not lose that privilege. And if you're a white person listening to this podcast, and that offends you, that just means... You need to work through the three hounds of hell and come out to the other side of love. We must come out to the side of love or be destroyed by the hounds of hell, fear, deception, and hate. Reflect on this as I give you my last quote from Howard Thurman. Quote, Jesus rejected hate because he saw 
that hatred meant death to the mind, death to the spirit, and death to communion with his father. He affirmed life and hatred was a great denial. End quote. Jesus rejected hatred because he saw that hatred meant death to the mind, death to the spirit, and death to communion with his father. He affirmed life and hatred was a great denial. Jesus rejected hatred because he saw hatred meant death to the mind, death to the spirit, and death to communion with his father. He affirmed life and hatred was a great denial. Would you join Jesus? Would you join Jesus? Would you join Jesus and Howard? Would you join Jesus, Howard, and Martin? Would you join Jesus, Howard, and Martin, and Pastor Vinny? And make hate your great denial. Deny hate out of your life. Choose life. Reject hate. For hate will take you away from your mind. It will take you away from your spirit. And it will take you away from your father. Like Howard. Like Martin. Like Vinny. Like Jesus, we must choose to not hold on to the hounds of hell. You have been listening to a podcast by Pastor Vinny McIsaac from simplyvinny.com. Stop by our website, check out our blogs, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, all that kind of jazzy promotional stuff. But most important, let's keep growing together in Jesus Christ all the more as we see the day of his return approaching. See you at the next podcast. God bless.